When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are two rules to remember if you want to have a good time. Rules! No rules! Rule number one. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. Rule number two. You're a dragon. Be a dragon. This week on Double Dragon, Steve and I cover the second of his name. That's the third episode of this season. Then I include my conversation with Dr. Helen Young. Helen is an expert on fantasy lit, its reception in the modern world, and she is specifically interested in this new Rings of Power show, and so she and I talk about the first couple episodes of that. Also, I'm really excited about this. My friend Patrick Moran is a Texas-based artist. He does a lot of really expressive work. At times, his work is a bit minimalist, and he's doing several House of the Dragon-themed pieces. You can find those at Patrick Moran Art and Design, and then look for his drop-down menu for House of the Dragon. I just love his stuff, and he's going to be adding two or three new pieces a week. Check that out. Buy a few prints. So that's Patrick Moran Art and Design. Okay. Without further ado, here is your friend and mine, stand-up comic Steve Osborne. So, Steve, if you had 24-hour access to a minstrel... <laughs> What would be on your playlist? So he's a minstrel, so he's got limited. Um, he only knows the one instrument. Only knows the one instrument. The, the instrument that like we felt like we could make. He knows every song, uh-huh. but he has to pluck away at his little minstrel guitar. Yeah, it's like it's like he made it out of like a stick, a Folgers can, and some rubber bands. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> What would you have him play? Um, I would see. I think that I would really enjoy his version of Enter Sandman. <laughs> okay. Um, I would probably have him do um, probably some Fleetwood Mac. That's interesting. I like the Enter Sandman thing because I recently we watched. Sort of a unplugged version of Black Hole Sun. Mm, yeah. And it was it was gorgeous. It was just beautiful. Yeah, I got to see that live. Oh, that man, just an amazing song. I mean, mm. I, I think that the video is sort of seared in my brain, but Sure. Uh that was that was great. So I think what Rainier is trying to do is she wants to enjoy him struggling. Like I think she's getting a lot of <laughs> a lot of pleasure out of it. And if I was going to take that tact, I think a song that I would enjoy over and over again, but also sort of sadistically enjoy him struggling, Peter Gabriel's Shock the Monkey. Oh, that would be a good one. And then he's just like, do the part where you yell monkey again. Because <laughs> <laughs> I do get the sense that it's one song over and over. Yeah, so I... 
I just saw it as a, I don't care if it's modern teenager or teenager <laughs> in Westeros. They're going to just play one song over and over and over again mm-hmm. until they get sick of it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. No, I did get the sense that she doesn't really like the song. She likes to watch him struggle. This um, is this is this is the power that she imagined she would one day wield as uh, as queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's got no. She really has no power over anything her father does anymore. Mm-hmm. So she's decided. Are you eating ice cream? Is that what's happening here? You're eating ice cream while we're podcasting. No, it was a, it was a protein shake. It's all gone now. Oh, all right. Because I was gonna say it's a little early for ice cream. It's Labor Day. You know oh, that's what? true. You know what? I'm no longer going to be respectful to the podcast. <laughs> there, now it's done. I just, I, I'm a little judgy. I feel a little judgy right now, but. Oh, no, yeah. I, I, I feel like it's are. justified. I feel like it's justified. You're like, why, that... didn't you, why didn't you finish your shake before podcast? No, I just thought it was early in the day for ice cream. I, oh. I, I didn't know it was a protein shake. If you were eating ice cream early in the day, I feel like you would want me to be a good friend and kind of judge you over it. I don't know, man. I feel like I feel like ice cream is is no different than having like a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch or something. Oh yeah, no, you can't do that, dude. You're in your forties. It's true. All right, I've identified four storylines, Steve. The first one I've identified as the toddler targ. While the king dotes over his toe-headed blonde son, Otto and his brother scheme. Hobart Hightower presses Otto to name Aegon the new heir. After being hectored by Tyland Lannister, Viserys demands to know where his daughter is. Later at the hunt, Otto tells the king that a white heart has been tracked. Because the white stag is a symbol of royalty, he suggests maybe the gods are endorsing the Targaryen toddler. After the hunt, Otto presses Allison to get the king to name the baby heir. The king and princess argue. She accuses him of trying to set her aside for his new son. He tells her she must marry, she can choose, but he promises not to supplant her. I'm kind of feeling that Allison has been mistreated. I feel like everyone else is like making decisions and making her life hard, but I, it's it's hard for me to try to fault Alicent for any decision she's made so far. How do you feel about the Alicent-Renera dynamic, though, when she's summoning her? I mean, this is they were best friends, man. And now she's stepmom, potentially right. popping out replacements. Okay. I could see Renera being angry for a few months. This is supposed to be three years later. Yeah. I get the sense that Allison has been trying to make up, and Rhaenyra is just not having it. I feel like she's... This is like an an Italian-level grudge she's holding against her former best friend. Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm on Team Allison. That's what I'm... That's, I'm declaring myself for Team Allison. Okay. I mean, I don't I don't feel like I have enough data because I mean, I, and it won't matter because we're going to time jump another what 4 or 5 years. I mean, ha, are we gonna, how long are we doing this? Is this? Yeah, no, let me ask you that. Let me How are you feeling about these time jumps? So, I, I we're we're 3 episodes in and we've already seen two time jumps and they're getting longer as we go. 
I would even say three because the very first episode. Oh right, it's they start off. with like nine years prior. Right, right. That's so you had one. that nine year time jump, and then the next two episodes were either months or years ahead, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. So anyway, I don't know. I I kind of feel like maybe they've done this once too often. Well, and we know that there's another time jump coming, at least one. Oh, because of they gotta they gotta age up these actors, right? Right. So so that's the other part. Is like I had already kind of braced myself for a time jump, but I didn't realize that was gonna keep happening. And here's the thing: they can do whatever they want. They really could. They could they could play with the timeline if they felt like telling the story would be helped by playing a little bit with the timeline. They could do it. What they've chosen to do is sort of jump ahead every episode, either months or years. And we know at least one more is coming. But I don't know. The, but to your kind of earlier point and brings up the question. Like, so, yeah, three years, three years, yeah. Renera yeah. and Allison are sort of doing this dynamic. Is there more to it? Because like, when, when you drop in three years later, like I can make the connection that like, oh, this must be really challenging considering everything. I mean, it's a big castle. On. Maybe they've just been like they've never sort of like <laughs> they've never like bumped into each other at dinner or something. Yeah, because <laughs> they're at the they're at the the Michael Keaton Bruce Wayne table. <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the way that they've done this, it does make you feel like Renera. You're gonna have to decide either to be miserable or do something else, right? Because this grudge is is not helping anyone. Uh, that's just my take on it. I still like. I, I'm still loving her character. I just feel like eh, it's just a bad look. No. Um. There's this so one. You, scene. So your team, Allison, just by virtue of, it, it feels like you you feel sorry for for Allison more than you are. Team well, Allison. here's the thing. I don't just feel sorry for her. There's a scene where Otto comes to her late at night and says, "Uh, you gotta." talk some sense into your husband because he's got to name his son heir. He's not going to come to that decision on his own. You have to help him find reason or something like that. And the next day, what she goes out and she does, or maybe it's the same night, she goes and talks to him and, and gives him really good advice about the stepstones. She's not trying to get her son on the throne so far. Right. So she's not entirely her father's creature. Right, and she so, may not have as much desire to have her son on the throne because she's. And it was a pretty good advice. It was. It was kind of like Viserys is worried. Like, this is not my war. I didn't choose it. My brother did this, and kind of screw him. And she she basically simplifies it. She says, "Let me ask a simple question: Is it better for the realm for this crab feeder to flourish or be vanquished?" Right. And it kind of like really cuts through all the politicking, which he says he feels suffocated by. And I so I think this is good advice. She's giving him good, not just not just good advice, but also good political advice. Well, it's good political advice, and I think it does also help with the undercurrent, undercurrent of the themes that, that uh, the show is dealing with, um, which is uh, tradition and order versus having to call an audible because you have new information or things have changed. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the issue at stake here, especially for Renera and the dynamic obviously between Viserys and everybody at this point is, well, look, now you have a male heir. Uh, let's just go back. You, you, you upset the apple cart because circumstances were what they were. Um, okay. We, we can, 
we didn't love your decision, but I mean, at least it made sense on paper. Now we can go back mm-hmm. and do it right. And that's the pressure he's feeling, right? You got to go do the right, the do, do, do what, what makes sense and has made sense for centuries. Now he is taking that and he's been sort of bucking it a little bit, but he still is, uh, when it comes to this, this issue, maybe it's a personal vendetta against his brother or whatever. He's, he's kind of pushing towards the, sort of the, the traditional approach of like, I'm not helping. This is not my war. So she comes in and says, okay, that's maybe, that may be true, but, but this is, there's a new reality. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's, what is the best decision now? Right. Cause that doesn't that sort of feel like that's the undoing of almost any political, uh, mission is the inability to be like, all right, we got to change course for the greater good or, you know, well, and also the, the inability to change course because you're holding a grudge against your enemies, which should be your allies, right? These Targaryens, they're really holding grudges. It's almost a bit of hubris. It's like this idea that we are so powerful that even if we are at war with each other, our enemies aren't going to swoop in and take advantage. Uh, So they're all kind of grudge holders and they're all a little bit myopic because of it. Well, this is the it's the White Walker thing, right? I mean, yeah, that's right. You you know, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I mean, interesting that in this show, the White Walkers is sort of the impending pressures on the Targaryen family from the rest of the realm, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, because they represent, and that's one of the things that you know, while it was kind of a critique from some uh, you know reviewers, is that because it doesn't have that, it doesn't feel as expansive because it's just infighting. Mm It still has the same level of intrigue. Oh, and this episode did a lot to sort of show us the interests, the motives, you know, intricate workings of other families, right? Mm-hmm. You got the the two Lannister twins, the strong boys. <laughs> you know, you've got these you got these women who are gossiping at court, you know, Lady Redwine. Uh you started to see a little bit of the wider kingdom at this hunt setting. Right, and it sort of puts the the king and all of his foibles on display for all the houses to see. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's 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 weak of he appears to be weak of spirit and of body, and that's this is yes, not good for that's anybody. right. He he <laughs> he's a mark. This is why <laughs> just just to just to let you know, this is why as a professor, you never change one bit of the syllabus. The syllabus has to stand as this bedrock concrete document that you've been using for 20 years and cannot be changed because it is the perfect document. The moment, the moment you decide to change something on the syllabus, the entire class smells a little bit of blood and they start circling (laughs) because if that bit can be chipped away, oh man, we're just going to start tearing this thing to shreds until we get the contract we want. And so I've learned, I've learned the hard way. You do, you never change the syllabus. This is what Viserys got wrong. He decided to change the syllabus. It said that Damon was his heir. And as soon as he decided to change the syllabus is the kingdom syllabus in this case. And the whole realm thought, well, if he can just change his mind, uh, we could change his mind again. Right. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Well, and this is, goes back to, I think, what we were talking about with Allison, is that you can't have it both ways. You can't call the audible. You can't change the path and then go, okay, but we're still going to do everything the same way, uh-huh. except for this one deviation. Sure. You have to be willing to deviate. But if you're a leader, you call that deviation. Get new information, make a decision. But he can't seem to do that, right? Yeah, he, can yeah, do, yeah. he can do it every so often or almost as a protest. Sure. He doesn't, you know... Even coming to the Renera uh, appointment did, didn't feel like it came from a place of like, yeah, I've thought long and hard over this. It was kind of like, I've just sort of been beat down and I'm tired of people telling me what to do. I'll make a decision whether it's the best one or not. Yeah. But then, he, but then you have to live with it. Right. And the reason why she's not talking to him and, and, and because he, there's just too much ambiguity because mm-hmm. he is wavering and he, he, he admits as much, but it's like wavering's fine, but you got you to gotta do something. Well, yeah. that's the other thing about this king. Is that he wants to be liked? Yeah, you know, right. he says at one point in the in the episode, he's like, "I am forever doomed to make one person angry to make another person happy." So it's really weighing on him. Like he really wants his seventeen year old daughter to like him, right? And as I, I'm a father of a of a daughter, and I want her to like me too. Um, but there's a there's a point in which you have to be a father. Even if it sort of might result in, uh, you know, making an unlikable choice. 
Heavy is the head that wears the wig. We've said it before. <laughs> All right, storyline two. This is Rhaenyra frolics with woodland creatures. <laughs> Rhaenyra abuses a poor minstrel while she reads in the Godswood. Alicent tries to rekindle her friendship with Rhaenyra to no avail. The princess is carted to the king's wood in the royal procession and pouts. The princess is goaded by Lady Redwine and her cake-eating dog. Then she suffers a half-assed attempt at romance by Jason Lannister. Rhaenyra confronts her father about matchmaking, gets yelled at, and rides off. Kristen Cole pursues, and they have a little adventure in the woods. They kill a boar together. The next day, they they have an encounter with the White Heart, but they choose not to kill it. And she returns to camp all sorts of badass bloody. (laughs) I was getting a little wrong burgundy energy from Jason Lannister. (laughs) I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) His whole attempt was, I'm kind of a big deal. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And uh, I I don't know if, do you remember the beginning of Austin Powers where Will Ferrell falls into the pit and he's not killed by the fall? He just keeps, keeps staying alive, yeah. I kind of got that energy of that that first Valerian sailor who was just talking oh smack gosh. to the crab eater. <laughs> it was so funny. So is that is that our first and our only like moment of levity, and it had to come at the expense of somebody getting tr- just completely trampled by a, uh, a dragon? It was a, it was a little Godzilla, wasn't it? Right. It's just it was funny, totally. Right? It was it was definitely funny. There was a couple funny elements of this in this episode for Still sure. Still not a lot of levity though, right? I mean, like there's moments. There's dark but, humor for sure, right? Uh, not nothing, nothing like the first show for sure, right? Yeah. Um, I, I let's talk a little bit more about Jason Lannister. So we got the Lannisters back in our life, and it is twin Lannisters, uh, like mm-hmm. before. I don't know what these guys do in the bedroom, but uh, they are twin Lannisters. Yes, and uh, one of them is, uh, according to the other, rather dull. <laughs> And one of them is like full on wrong burgundy. How are you feeling about these guys? Um, I like I like this addition, and I think again I, there is a certain amount of smarm that we've been missing, right? So like we're not maybe getting the levity that we want, but like there needs to be some smarm. And I think if you're gonna give me smarm in Westeros, it better have Lannister uh, sigil attached. <laughs> it's it. a, it's definitely Lannister DNA on this. Yeah, yeah. He just gives off this sense this would have worked on any other woman in the kingdom. He's got his sort of approach, and it works 100% of the time. Always. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a Sex Panther is his wine. Yeah. <laughs> this is a Sex Panther moment, right? So so he goes up to her, and she's just like a, a little bit amused by him, a little bit taken aback, but a little bit amused. When she sort of dismisses him and walks away... He like huffs like this has never happened to me before. I, I I thought it was a great scene. Yeah, I like a little bit of a Lannister fit. <laughs> All right, so there's this one little line that she says while she's in the cart with her father, and he's basically saying, "Hey, it's a hunt. Come on out. Come right out with me. It's a hunt." And she says, "No one's here for me." Mm-hmm. I thought that was an, a really interesting way to kind of show she's a little bit spoiled, right? She, you know, sure. you know, why why should I go to a party if it's not for me? Right. Uh, but then also, I didn't know how to read Viserys in that moment because 
one way to read it is that he's thinking, oh, I think she wants to have someone show her some attention. Maybe I'll try to use this opportunity to match her with Lannister Lord number one. Or was he thinking, yeah, actually someone is here for you. And you're gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, you're gonna be happily surprised that that this guy is showing you attention. I so, think it was, I think it was a little more planned. I think it was the latter. Okay, I, I think that that's where I landed too. So he's been planning to set her up with this guy. Then. Yeah. At least that's how we're reading it now. There, there was that one little moment where Jason Lannister's looking at Rhaenyra, like ogling her a little bit, and the king doesn't look very happy about it. Mm-hmm. But I guess I could just be like, yeah, this is gonna. I gotta make her happy somehow. I'm not happy with the guy, but maybe she'll be happy with the guy. Well, and that's the interesting thing about uh, Viserys is that uh, I just don't think he likes this gig. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's not he's not yeah. real not great at it. He hates and, being king, and he sucks at it. And so he has to make these decisions that go against maybe his own. Uh, you know, interest or his own, you know, yeah, hearts of desire, like and like, because he knows, like, that's the whole thing. And, I, and she calls him on it later, which I think it, it might be my favorite uh, part of the whole uh, show or this uh, this episode is when when he base when she basically says that you know choosing Alicent didn't move the needle, right? It didn't. It didn't. Yeah, if marriage is all about duty, then why didn't you marry uh, Lena? Right, so right. so he he took the advice, do the like, because that was, and that that really shows, I think, the heart of of this three year uh, spat is, I gave you advice, you took the advice, but then you twisted the advice, and you decided, oh, well, then I'm just going to marry for you chose to marry for love, uh-huh. but it turns out to be my best friend, and then now it's look at what it's what it's yielded, it's yeah right, like like in, to some degree it was. I don't have a relationship with my best friend because of you, and there's no duty attached to it. And if you're not going to name the the son as the heir, then there's even less duty to it. So I don't want to lose my position, but if I at least lost my position, then we could start pointing to duty. But you're doing none of that. So right. like every decision he's making... And he owns the, it. He's he's willing to say, yeah, you're right. You got a point. Yeah. Right. And I just think that's such a... And that is a fascinating dynamic, too. The fact that he does own it, and he owns it with her, and I mean, he is in in some ways he's a better father than a king, but he's still a bad father. <laughs> and, well, and that's right things. because I think again we were talking before in a previous episode about doing the right thing as a human sometimes is the exact opposite of what the right thing as a king to do, mm-hmm. and you you do get the sense that like he's just it's, it's just a really basic human emotion to want to have a good relationship with your children. But here we have a king who's like, he he's almost willing to make a bad decision for thousands of people in the realm to make his daughter happy. Right. And then the, on the on the flip side of it, from a larger perspective, it's like, sure, you can upset the typical order of things and you can have a, a woman on the Iron Throne that would be, you know, that's arguably something that would be greater for, uh, it's for the greater good 
you know, much larger picture. Like, I mean, there's there's big picture, right? And then, but then there's the bigger picture for Westeros and perpetuity, right? That says, okay, what if we upset the culture? What if we what if we change the dynamic and we didn't yeah. we weren't slaves to tradition? That's a bold and arguably um, noble and maybe a better leadership move for a king to make to not be looking at just the houses today, but the houses tomorrow. But he's not doing that. I mean, he's, he's his his end may be that, or at least that's what it looks like. But it's not. That's not the reason. He's not yeah. leading that way. He's leading very. He's, he he has. He's created a massive, big picture culture shift for a very myopic reason. And I think that that's kind of that adds to the fascination of this whole dynamic. Is that you as a king, you can set this path in motion, but you've got to sell out to it. But if you don't know the, that's right. If, if you're not really be like beholden to the rationale behind it then then you don't know where this is going it's just yeah he he kind of presents as someone who's always always second guessing himself and then actually this is a big episode for him second guessing himself right right you want to convey a sense as a king that you do what's right and so you you know what the right thing to do is and you do it and you stand by the decision um, it's not it's not the best way to be in the world, but it is sort of the only way to be as a king and not exhibit weakness, right? So, yeah. and it sort of feels like a like the ultimate critique of patriarchy is uh, patriarchy exists because uh, you know men are lazy and can't get real creative, <laughs> so it's just <laughs> it's just easier to do nothing. <laughs> well, and I think that goes back to sort of his decision to make her his heir because. He's the only one, it seems, that thinks that this is a good idea. Right. Like everyone else is like, uh, dude, you got a son now. What what are you what are you waiting for? You changed your mind once with an heir, change it again, you got you put your son on the throne. Nope. I'm gonna do what I think is right. I'm gonna put my daughter on the throne. I don't care what anyone else thinks. You can kind of just feel like the shark circling, right? Right. Well, it's also because there's a three-year gap of him make of him reaffirming this commitment. It shows, yeah, right. I mean, he has a he has a male heir uh, a couple years ago, right? And even if you're having a year of tension, you could still you could make the declaration. You could say nothing has changed. You could you could be putting Rhaenyra mm-hmm. out there as the rightful heir, as opposed to sort of an ornament to, or something to sort of marry off. This clearly the issue was he he never he never reaffirmed it and 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 people knew that i mean it's been explicitly stated and that's what's happening in this entire episode so if, if all these other houses know it then of course renera knows it and so it, mm-hmm. it, it, you know not only are we dealing with somebody who's who's a child so let's be clear about that so she's not exactly while she may show levels of maturity and leadership at an early age it still is at an early age and not fully uh fleshed out and so you can't yeah you, you can't expect her to be you're going to need to reaffirm you're going to need to make that clear, um, and and without that, you've got this. There's this gap. Not only, like you said, this, the sharks aren't just circling from other houses. I mean, it's it's at home too. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there is this scene with her and Kristen that they're they're sort of arguing in the woods, and they're not arguing so much as they're just discussing in the woods about the burden of royalty. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's talking about how hard it is to be princess. Right. And Kristen's like, uh, there's tons of people in this kingdom that would happily switch places with you. You almost get the sense with her that she feels like 
she can never do anything she wants. But from her father's perspective, it's like all you ever do is what you want. Right. It's just this classic teenage daughter kind of thing. It is, and also let's let's consider what her model of royalty is, like what her model of leadership looks like. Um, he he's got no poker face. I mean, <laughs> it's it's clear that he's yeah. just he feels this burden of having no agency. So it's sort of she's finally at that stage where she's realized that she's smarter than her dad. Right, and then she realizes if I outsmart him, then I get to be in this role and I get to have no agency again. <laughs> I think we both have daughters that have realized that. Like, at some oh point, yeah, they're like, oh crap! I thought this guy was pretty good until I yeah. realized he's kind of a big dummy. Yeah, I think it was fourth day dropping her off at kindergarten. I knew everything changed. <laughs> she, she starts looking at you with those. You know what? She's just like, so not why sure do you, you know what you're doing, old man? She's like, so you, you, you don't know how to drive a stick shift, or you just prefer an automatic? And I was like, just go to school. <laughs> So Kristen's like, yeah, I, I, I had some fun in my youth, and then, uh, you know, I could have married a common girl, uh, decided to do something else with my life, and here I am. And she's a little bit jealous of him. She's like, man, it'd be nice to make make a choice in my life and have it stick. And I do feel like he's a little bit more mature, right? He's like, you have no idea how good you have it. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's uh, kind of a voice within... Uh, within the world, but outside of it, which helps. Okay, so at the end of this episode, Viserys tells his daughter she's got to get married. She can marry... She can go find her own husband. Uh, This seems like it has all the signs of, like, I'm going to marry the wrong guy. (laughs) And I might just do it to spite you, kind of. So... I mean, I guess Sir Kristen would might be a front runner for this. What do you think? It, it feels like it, right? But it almost feels too much like it. Like it. Well, it feels, he would have to like he he's taken vows of celibacy, so he would have to forsake those. Right. So would that feel naughty enough to make it attractive? Yeah, I just feel like I mean, we're into Game of Thrones, and we're only season or we're only episode three, mm-hmm. but we're due for. We're due for a major death. Oh, interesting. So he he feels like he's got he he has no narrative armor as far as I'm concerned. Sure. All right. So you're thinking maybe he doesn't stick around very long, right? Uh, but I do. I I mean I do feel like she's gonna use these words against him. She's he said you can go out and find your own guy, mm-hmm. and she can almost have anyone in the kingdom. Yeah, I mean, her options are, you know, one of the uh, HGTV Lannister twins or, or uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Clubfoot. I, uh, I like that they're bringing in these strong boys. I, I do like, <laughs> I'm starting to really appreciate the whole strong family. I feel like uh, Lionel Strong, I feel like this guy, oh, let me ask you this question. All right, so. He presents as smart and soft-spoken, right? Mm-hmm. He gives good advice, seemingly, although some of his advice is to marry off the king to a 12-year-old. Right. But politically speaking, he's smart. Yeah. So, And he doesn't seem that ambitious so far. Right. And so then the question is, should I be rooting for Lionel Strong, or should this make me suspicious? 
I see. I just go suspicious. I mean, I don't. I don't <laughs> you're know. Full, you're full on Game of Thrones mode at this point. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it'd be weird if it wasn't, right? Yeah, um, but I kind of feel like I need someone. Right, because you can't really trust Otto to be like, well, why don't you just have her marry her little baby brother? Oh, Otto, Otto just gets more and more evil. Yeah, Otto, Otto showed his whole ass this episode. <laughs> what? How about that two-year-old? How about, how about, I, how about your strapping young son, uh, who's all two years old? I mean, he's, two, a great I'm match. Two, he's two, but I'm telling you, from here, he looks like three, three and a half. That guy is hung like a horse. I've seen it. <laughs> It doesn't. It skips a generation. You know? <laughs> so, all right. This brings us to storyline four. Viserys gets drunk. Viserys is giving off sad dad energy to everyone. <laughs> he decides he's going to get stupid drunk at the hunt and gets annoyed with Jason Lannister and Otto Hightower for their proposals. For the second time, Lord Strong suggests a marriage alliance, and this time between Rhaenyra and Lenore. Later on, by the fire, Viserys confesses to Alicent that he thought his dreams were prophetic, and he allowed himself to be guided by them. This obsession killed his first wife and resulted in a second wife. Now he's doubting his faith. The next day, he sucks at killing a CGI stag. (laughs) (laughs) The the stag was... Like, they're doing the the bang-up work with the dragons for sure, man. Stags are hard, dude. It's like they got the dragons down. They're like, I, for some reason, we just can't crack this stack. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know how it is. Like, like I was pretty good at drawing like a horse, sure. but I could not draw a car. <laughs> the doors were always in the wrong spot. The way you, you draw the doors and then the windows second. I'm a 46-year-old man, and all my cars look like I drew them with my left hand, and I'm four. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I see cars all the time, <laughs> but my brain's, brain's like, mm, I think every day I drive a refrigerator box with square wheels. <laughs> yeah, the stag, it was a, it was an interesting problem. I, I was absolutely taken out. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard one um, because I kind of expect it. Uh-huh. And there were moments, there were moments like, like, like sort of like, distant when it was in motion like my brain was kind of like okay okay this like don't mm-hmm. and then it was oh, okay and i don't know i don't know how else to get around that right i mean well okay let me ask you this question how'd you feel about the boar i felt okay with the boar yeah the boar was fine i i mean i i, I kind of knew that it was cgi but for whatever reason maybe because it was like going fast or something yeah i was totally fine with it and then well, I think a boar doesn't have as much like neck movement and whatnot. So when a boar moves, it's like watching a rugby ball get thrown, sure. you know, because it's just because yeah. there's not a lot of like it's not like which is interesting about a dragon how sinewy and serpentine it can be. But I think that might help because it's because of how much motion it's going in. Whereas uh-huh. the stag, you're you also have an expectation of how it's going to move. You know what? I think I got this figured out. So you've got these CGI digital artists right and they're they're all really talented right but if you got put on stag duty <laughs> like all your best friends got dragon duty oh wow yeah oh geez you give me stag like you just you're not into it you don't have your heart into it oh yeah i remember when like they were handing out reports and like if you get if you get stuck with something in the wrong like 
laughter. Oh man, you, you, you like, sort of they half-assed the stag because uh-huh. they, if you got stag duty, th- that was almost an insult. Yeah. So you're like taking long lunches. You're going home early. When I was in uh, like elementary school, and every once in a while we'd have like music time. Sure. And then the box of instruments would come out. And we were not a, a wealthy school by any stretch. Did you uh, did you have like a an egg shaker in there? Oh, there was an egg shaker. There was the triangle. What about the tambourine? Was, you got a tambourine. No, there was a tambourine. There was there was a, a, a like a stick with like little tiny little symbols on it. That oh, interesting. Oh, together. yeah, I remember that one. I remember. Yeah, that like guy. that was like that was the pearl of great price, right? I mean, that was like the one, and like. And you just, it was all about where you were going to sit and where they started with the box because you're just like, man, if uh-huh. I get the freaking triangle and, you know, it's like, yeah, I'll do my best. You know, what's my job here? Like, what's my role? Everybody else is like keeping the rhythm. Like, you don't, nobody wants you to constantly keep the rhythm with the triangle. The triangle comes in and like makes a cameo, you know? So you better believe I'm going to miss my cue if I'm triangle boy. That's stag duty. And it sounds like you, you had to be triangle boy for a little bit oh yeah we, it's like it's kind of like it, it, it is like jury duty right everybody has to have their time with the triangle no one's taking <laughs> triangles not going top three picks in the draft right just never <laughs> <laughs> i have no idea how we got here uh <laughs> i do like the idea that viserys was a man of faith before right of course, the faith was sort of in his own sense of prophetic ability. And you almost get the sense, like, I, I finally understand why he does. he's not that impressed with the dragons. He's always been a little dragon dubious. And he felt like, I thought I was a dreamer. I thought I had these prophetic dreams. And that's really what I cared about. And I lived my whole life following this and obsessing over it and thinking that it was going to make me special. And then when it didn't work out the way I thought it would, everything kind of fell apart. Because he really does present as someone with lost faith. Yeah. But it also questioned, you know, because of what we know about Viserys, it's like, how deep was that faith, right? Like, it's it was the faith only as good as it was when it validated your own, you know, hopes. Well, I mean, he followed his, what he thought was pro- prophecy, and it resulted in his wife's death. I mean, that's yeah. a wake-up alarm for sure, right? Yeah, I guess that would do it. <laughs> I'd probably go to less uh, Sunday services. <laughs> anyway, he's starting to make more sense to me. Because I was always a little bit like, what do you mean you you don't like dragons? Like, what do, what do you mean that the dragons are... <laughs> you're Targaryen king, man. Like, the dragons are where your power resides. You can't... You can't be so nonchalant about these dragons but now i kind of get it it's like oh no targaryens are also known for their prophetic dreams and that's where he thought he would find a little niche right yeah i guess that that works i mean and, and again is is a man who um is like lost faith or is losing faith uh now he has to i mean if you're if you're a religious person or a spiritual person i mean you're you defer to the hierarchy of the gods or, or uh-huh. God. And if that proves to be folly, if that proves to be something that like, oh, that, that was all happenstance, you're not you're not accustomed to, to making these types of decisions because you because you've deferred. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Like he was he was sort of rock solid in his faith 
And then when he lost it, he kind of lost the ability to make decisions for himself. Right, because now it's like, okay, well, no, the whole time I've now I've got to do this. There's like, who do I go to? Do I go to the Council of Man? I mm. I, I don't trust that, I, and I can't go to a higher power. And now it's up to me, and it's just like. That's where I think we're getting this sort of like freeform jazz approach to leadership. Well, it's also interesting because the feel like the Targaryens almost believe that they are close to gods, right? And so the question, so it's not just when he loses faith; it's not like b- losing faith in a higher power; it's like losing faith in the dynasty, and that in and of itself weakens you. It's like yeah, it's like it's like hatching a dragon without wings. It's like okay, well. It's something, but it's not everything. All right. Storyline four. Uh, oh, no. I think I skipped a storyline somewhere in here. This is called Trouble with Crabs. <laughs> Kragus Dahar continues to burn and crucify and steal and generally annoy the Valerian fleet. An especially mouthy Valerian sailor gets crabbed and then cheers with Damon shows up on Dragonback. Then he gets stomped. The crab feeder escapes the dragon pretty easily with his innovative hide-in-cave strategy. Meanwhile, back at the King's Landing, the king is pressed to take action. After the hunt, Alicent gets the king to send a letter to Damon with a promise of ships and soldiers. Meanwhile, at the Stepstones, the battle goes badly for the Blondies. Vaymond questions the value of the alliance with Damon, but is talked down by his nephew, and his brother. Damon is upset to hear that his brother is sending aid, so he makes one last desperate effort to flesh out the fleshy crab feeder. The battle ends with Damon cutting Kragus in half. Lenor shows up on his dragon, Sea Smoke. Is it believable these guys got two dragons and they're losing a war to a guy with crabs? <laughs> How deep is this cave? It is I mean, clearly it's clearly farther than fire deep. It's a rhetorical question. I absolutely don't believe that they are losing. They got two dragons with and they're going up against pirates. Like a ship can only go so fast. So these guys are hiding in caves, but the caves are on islands. They're... How are there archers anywhere ever? <laughs> And I understand that this is like this is like B squad, C squad, stormtrooper level archers, but yeah, <laughs> you're right. These archers suck. Dude, these archers blow. So this whole thing didn't work for me. I I, I feel like that we finally found a storyline that's not working. And I mean, I guess to a certain extent, maybe they wrapped it up because they they cut the guy in half, right? Yeah. So maybe I don't have to worry about this going forward, but I do feel like this is a little bit of a concern for me. Um, I just don't believe that this guy can be... Per- <laughs> Look, you got two dragons. This guy's got crabs. I, I don't see how this works. <laughs> now, if you have crabs at home and you're listening to this, please understand what we're talking about. We're not saying that you in your condition are not an apt fighter we're talking we're not crab shaming anyone yeah so well and i think part of that is juxtaposed to game of thrones even at its weakest um was always tactically interesting and and it yeah. felt it felt uh the war and the battles were lost yeah and one of the way that they did that is that they always had the dragons until later seasons they always had the dragons have some kind of deficit 
Right. Right? Like, either they were too small, or they, they didn't know how to control them, or the dragon left, or we got to... We got to shackle up the the dragons. Now these guys are supposed to know how to use these this dragons. Is the height of dragondom. Yeah, the ha- the height of dragondom, and they can't even take down. All right, look. Let me put it this way: the first Aegon conquered all of seven kingdoms with three dragons. These guys have two dragons, and for three years they're being eluded. <laughs> they're fighting. They're fighting Krabby Kruger. And his number one, uh, you know, r- battle plan is hide, hide farther than the fire can reach. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure if this is, I can't talk myself out of this one. This is pretty Yeah, I, I was trying with that because there was a lot of this that was visually fun. Yeah. Um, but it was also like, it still felt a little bit absurd. And so at the end, when he's, when he's dragging, dragon dragging the mm. uh <laughs> the carcass out it's kind of like well that that's the end of that um yeah does it feel like this episode i mean i really liked all of the hunt part of this episode mm-hmm. and i think i should have been really excited to see damon be a badass right um and i got to see you know laner show up on his sea smoke dragon which you know new dragon in the house I just was a little bored by this part of it. And I, we've talked a bit uh, before about having too much battle in an episode and you get a little battle fatigue. Um, yeah. I did feel like this is, Sapochnik was the guy who did Hard Home and Battle of the Bastards, and I kind of felt like those were amazing. This was not amazing. So I don't I don't know what to think about this. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, uh, I, I, like, so... The arrows, like, all missing him until the end. I could almost get on board with, like, from a from the perspective of that type of um, battle attack with all the archers is probably way more effective on a massive amount of people charging. But when you're well, when you're trying to aim at one, maybe it, maybe it's that's odd not as because good. earlier in the episode he actually gets shot with an arrow on Dragonback, right? Yeah, and I was like, true. "Oh, the, he really, he really took that one." And then he breaks it off. Um, maybe that was their way of showing, like, "Well, people do get hit with arrows sometimes." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been happening for three years, apparently. Um, it, <laughs> yeah, because then when it finally happens, right? When he finally just says, "Well, I'm just going to bum rush it by myself," and then once I'm got them all out of the cave, mm-hmm. dragging them. And then bring our bigger army that's much more adept with better steel and everything. You're like, mm-hmm. sure does feel like you guys should have. I mean, you, mm-hmm. not like they don't have the numbers, right? I mean, they they even have. I mean, like, what would have happened if they just said, "Let's just go to those caves. <laughs> Let's just go." Well, they do that little scene with Corliss earlier, where they're like, they, they try to establish that trying to. Trying to go into those caves is a little bit of a could, fool's errand. Like you, who would be crazy enough to go into those caves? Right. But even so, I kind of the dragon like, can't stick its head in farther. <laughs> I, I don't get it, man. I mean, couldn't they have been working on like a fire cone that would like, like you know, like be the equivalent of putting your thumb on the end of a hose and to get more like power and spray? Okay, in this world. There's a no dragon can can like burn stone till it collapses. Mm. 
Uh, like that's how they took down Hall. They basically, you know, Valerian the Black Dread basically burned a castle made of stone. Um, you're telling me that if a dragon doesn't just keep baking the front of that cave, it, he, he couldn't collapse it? Or could you I just, don't know. Could you just seal it and just like, okay, you're in a tomb now? Yeah, something like that. They, they, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I didn't hate it. It just didn't work for me. So Yeah, well, the problem with it more than anything is those thoughts are going through your mind. And it's kind of like when somebody's telling a, a decent joke, but they've gotten a couple of the, maybe the tenses wrong, or they mm-hmm. make a couple of things. Like, as soon as I'm not thinking about, as, as soon as I'm out of the, mm-hmm. the the story and I'm thinking about its structure, it, it almost doesn't matter how it plays out. And so it was, by, so by the time he comes out and he's, he's dragging the, the half uh, corpse out, I was kind of like, part of me was kind of relieved. Like, all right, well. Oh, okay. Let's talk about that. So, did this guy ever have a line in the show? Because they were almost setting him up as the big baddie. Right. Now, we're going to see this guy. We're going to find out of his backstory a bit. We're going to find out why he's so formidable, an enemy. Clearly formidable enough to have given these guys hell for about three years. Uh, At the end of the day, no lines, gets Darth mauled, and then that's it. That's it for him. So does that feel a bit odd to have him exit in that way? It does. I think the I think the bigger message that was trying to be sent uh, in this whole battle is that you know whether or not it was presented in the way that maybe you and I would have enjoyed better um, is that the Targaryens may be a little full of themselves. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we're dragons. We're this. We're that. And and the thought was, well, no one can really threaten us. I mean, we're not going to spend all this energy and go against a bunch of pirates or this or that. But the reality of it is, um, you got to want it. And and when you have nothing to lose, you become a lot more dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I think the idea that uh, this is this is Ewoks taking down, you know, the stormtroopers. I mean, it's you know it's it's don't underestimate your your enemy and and it shows a vulnerability that's that's like okay look this is this is part of what happens you know we talked about if the targaryens are fighting amongst themselves and that creates an opening for other houses and this is a perfect example like this is not the lannisters <laughs> this is yeah. not this right. is not this is these are pirates and these aren't even like you know cool sexy pirates this is <laughs> yeah, this is is this is Captain Scurvy in the gang, and it's. I mean, so I think that that's the to me that's the. I take that overall theme as as something to take away from it, regardless of maybe how I feel about the execution. But going back to what we were talking about, and you talked about the you know uh, the the repertoire that this you know, director has from battle scenes and mm-hmm. it does, you know, cause again, this, this, this show is so damned by the previous yeah, one, both good right. and bad that it's like, it, this is your best foot forward. Mm-hmm. I really am going to want less battle scenes that are more, more, you know, visually stunning than they are logically. Uh, well, stunning. I think that visually stunning is the right phrase here. I think if I had to guess, I would say that this is a this is a show that's all about 
conversations in rooms with tapestries. That's kind of what this show's about. Mm-hmm. And they had to figure out some way to get us outside. And they did it by taking all of these conversations out into the Kingswood. And then they brought us action through this kind of insignificant storyline. They're trying to use Damon and Corliss as action heroes in a show that's supposed to be built for House of Cards style politics. Right. And in a way that a victory of this nature does set things up and it, it does politically complicate things, right? And uh Right. And yeah, so that's, that's so that's so that's good for the Damon and Corliss. But I also did take an opportunity to show that uh, there's some infighting uh, between Corliss and family, right? I mean, I think that's that right. that's so. I, th- I think it's it's showing. I mean, there's a lot of good that comes out of this. Uh, I just think there's some execution errors. There's some execution. I want to say one thing that I liked about the storyline that I just thought was great. I like that everyone knows that this war needs support from Viserys. Everyone knows. Everyone in the kingdom knows that this battle is going badly. They need support from the king. And they finally get it. And Damon is disappointed. He's not just disappointed. He's like pissed off. He kills the messenger. He, he, he literally tries to kill the mess- messenger. And you kind of get the sense that this guy can't win because he'll never be able to do anything on his own. He's always going to need his brother's help. Well, and the beauty of that is he doesn't need his brother's help because his brother is smarter or, you know, more talented. Sure. It's that his brother just happens to be on the throne. Yeah. And which that... which should be him, right? In his right. mind, that should, he was never good at being king. You put me on that throne, all these problems are solved. So how insulting is it that, that in order for you to show your worth, for the throne, you uh-huh. decide to do this heroic uh, mission <laughs> that is failing because you don't it have only access. proves you to be inept, right? Right, right. It's and so when he runs, when he does the fake surrender and he's running in there, I did get the sense that it could go either way for him. Like, and he was okay with it. You know, like I kind of sure. got the sense that I'm either going to come out with half a, a body or I'm going to leave half a body, and it's it, it, it was that part I thought was 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 pretty fascinating and going back to what we talked about in terms of insecurity and how that then makes somebody more uh you know even more menacing I think I think that that played out pretty well here yeah yeah here we have this guy who he's got everything right he's he's got he he's a he's a champion he's one of the best knights in the kingdom he's got a dragon he's he's wealthy and he just he just can't stand his brother's shadow he just it just makes him livid and so now he's unpredictable now he is now it, is this, this guy is so insecure he's willing to kill people over it so well and isn't this such an interesting uh character too because we're all like he's menacing and kind of terrifying, but he he doesn't he loses more than he wins. It feels like. I mean, he's he <laughs> how does this guy losing anything? And how does... even even the 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 joust man? I mean, he loses. And, that's right. <laughs> and I think that that's interesting because they've they've created this this 
I, I, for, I mean, I guess he's a villain, but it's it's the Game yeah. of Thrones world. Everybody's a little villainous. But he doesn't... He's not Steven Seagal in Under Siege. You know? No, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit of Michael Jordan energy off him. It's like Michael Jordan would, like, create these little slights. He would, like, create the sort of these narratives about people who had disrespected him. Right. So he could kind of fuel... His talent, he, he kind of direct. That was sort of his magic feather. He could like he needed, direct. He needed. Yeah. He needed some. He needed to create a narrative that no one believed in him, even if he was a, a five time champion going. Right, and so it's almost like this guy. It's like Damon's. Like he's he's going to be like so focused on the moment of his loss that he's going to. He's not going to be able to see all the times he's won. Right. You know, compare him with almost any other person in the kingdom. He's a winner. He was born a winner. He's got all the the talent. He's got brains. He's got privilege. He's got all this stuff, and he just feels deep down. He just feels like a loser. Uh, that that's fascinating to me. So. Right, and clearly uh, this battle against Kragus was his flu game. <laughs> this is his flu game for sure. <laughs> and he needed it. This wouldn't be like losing to Carl Malone. This would be like losing to the Utah Jazz when they, all they had was John Stockton. Yeah, yeah, yeah Hornacek beached you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great analogy. All right, we got ourselves a, uh, a dismemberment count. Now, does it count if it's like if you get cut in half? Because when I think of dismemberment, I mean I feel like you, you've lost an appendage. But if right. you get cut down the middle, is that dismemberment? I feel like that's uh that's like a bulk dismemberment, right? That's like mm. that's like a Kirkland signature. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna count it. All right. He's yeah. his top half was dismembered from his bottom half or the other way around. Um and then we have uh cheek speak. Whoa, I mean that's back to back. Back to back zeros. We were both wrong. We both Said five and took the over, right? Yeah. So we're total, both totally wrong on that one. And then do finally, we ha- do we have an over under for a cheek speak going in the next? Oh, week? that's a good point. That's a good. Point. I'm going to hold it at five because I think we're way overdue. I'm a little stumped. I'm going to go under. Okay. I feel like you could be right. We could have an explosion of cheeks. That's right. It's just. Yeah, this is this. Yeah, it's like, this this will be the eyes wide shut episode of House of the Dragon. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go under. So five or over, you win. Under four, five, I win. Four and a half and under, you win. Four and a half and under, I win. And then finally, would you call this a Dinklage, a Danny, or a Dorn in terms of ranking? Um, I'm gonna give this a Danny minus one. Interesting. Yeah, I was I was gonna say this is our first Dorn. Okay. Because I was, I was gonna say I, I was almost gonna say like Dorn plus one or Dorn plus two. I love the the hunt. The stepstone stuff just didn't work for me at all. So yeah, I was gonna initially I was gonna go uh, Danny minus two to flirt at the Dorn territory, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I think I didn't want to put too much weight in the stepstones. Uh, some of the issues I had with it just because it was the last thing we saw because I think there was so much good stuff in the hunt. Yeah. And I, and I feel like I, I, I feel like my uh, 
audience relationship with the series is so much more interesting than I thought it was going to be. And it's super mm. rich. Um, he's uh, he, man. He's so good. Patty Constantine is so amazing. He's, he's, he's blowing me away. And, uh, I, uh, I feel like so the thing is that so that's why I'm like it was I I can't dorn it I can't I mean mm, okay I, I have you. to look back at my dorns and go I know how I felt with the dorn <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I uh, well it's a good point it's a good because he's a but it's almost like he's being killed with a thousand paper cuts this guy yeah, yeah. it's like he's being annoyed to death. Right. Well, all so, those that's little... that's hard to kind of pull off. Like he, you're so annoyed that you're like you're just like not exhausted by being so annoyed all of the time. But you do really get the sense that you really feel for him in this episode. Well, because the I, the odd thing is, I do feel like deep down there's a there's there might be actually a great king in there because he doesn't want to be king. Yeah. Sure. And and I think we talked about that on the rewatch of Game of Thrones. Like, who's who's best to rule is the one that maybe makes the least sense to do so. It's interesting. I was thinking, like, who would be the best ruler in this kingdom? I, I think it might be Rhaenyra if you gave her Lionel Strong as her hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Because she's got all the confidence that her father doesn't have. And she's arrogant. I think you need to be a little bit arrogant as a king. Right. right? Um, and then... I mean, she's a bit immature, but if you could give her someone like Lionel Strong, if there's anyone I'm rooting for in the show, it's it's him. Yeah, right he, now, he's just right. presenting as why soft-spoken, not ambitious. How how do I not root for this guy? So we'll we'll see, we'll see. Hey, I feel a little bit. Uh, uh, so Lady Redwine is the the woman who had the little fat dog who was eating oh, cake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was getting a little Steve Osborne energy off her. Because <laughs> of the dog? or Well, if you think about what she's doing, like she's sitting around gossiping. Mm-hmm. She's got opinions on how things should be run. Uh, she's enjoying the food. Oh, yeah. And she's got a little dog. Yeah. I, I, get, I, I, feel, I feel like maybe I'm a little more Lady Red Wine than I give myself credit for. <laughs> Did you now when you saw the dog? There were a lot of dogs in this episode, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of dogs. I'm kind of curious to hear you. You're a very uh, strong dog guy. Uh, It it brought me a great deal of joy. You like to see all the dogs. I like to see dogs. I like. I feel like dogs. Seeing regular dogs, not CGI dogs or Uh magic dogs, goes a long way for me to be like to get back to the people part of it. Sure. I was thinking, I because I said I was missing magic in this show. I, I was missing it again, and I was thinking, you know, it'd be really cool to see like a a giant hound, hound as big as a horse. How about that? Well, that'd be, that'd just, just, just to make me happy. Just a little something to make me happy. How about a pug as big as a boar? <laughs> <laughs> was that Lady Redwine's dog? Was it a pug? I think so. Which does bring up some interesting things about like. Breed, breeding history and how we got there, but I'm like, all right, I'll, 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 I'll yeah, it's a little it. anachronistic to have have that dog at that stage in history, right? Yeah, we had all these wolves before, but now it's like, oh, you know, I mean, before them there was the pug. That's where the wolf was descended from. It was weird. <laughs> I love that we got dragons, and it's the pug breeding that took you out of the episode. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of like when people are critiquing the new Lord of the Rings. They're like, you know, I can handle giant eagles that you can fly on and, and ogres that come from the ground. But a Puerto Rican elf? No, thank you. <laughs> All right, here's my conversation with Dr. Helen Young. She's all the way from Australia at Deakin University, and she has a new book coming out with friend of the podcast, Kavita Mudan Finn. This is called Global Medievalism, an Introduction. You can find that on the Cambridge University Press website. And just a pro tip on this, this series sometimes includes free copies for the first couple of weeks that this is on pre-order. So check that out. You might get a free book out of it. All right, here's Helen. So this is the Cambridge Core series, and you, and they might include a free copy? You're not sure about that? Uh, I believe the ebook copy is free for the first two weeks. Uh-huh. Um and after that it 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 reverts to paying. Um, okay. All right. That's certainly what they've done with some of the other books in the series, so I'm hoping uh-huh. they do it with ours. Okay. Well, I you know what? I'll I will send people to this website and I'll say, you know, sometimes with this series they'll include a free copy for the first couple of weeks, but I won't make any promises. About yeah, that. that would that would be great. Um yeah, just in case. So that brings us to Rings of Power, and uh, as we record this, I've seen the first two episodes. Um, you have been... I have now seen both of them. Okay, all right. We, we got the kids to bed two nights in a row. Um, <laughs> good, good. My, my, the, the two-month-old baby actually um, did not sleep either night, so he's watched them too, but... Um... Okay, okay. Now... You're someone who, like me, has sort of had a relationship with Tolkien your whole life, or seemingly, you know? Pretty much as long as I can remember, yeah. Right, and then you took the extra step of studying his work academically, and so he sort of followed you through a few different stages of your life, I, I guess. So now, how do you meet Rings of Power? I mean... Do you, do you, do you try to let it wash over you and kind of enjoy the experience, or is it just impossible for you to shut off your analytical side of your mind when you're watching? It must be a whole range of experiences for you. Yeah, um, I tried not to think about it too much. I watched the teaser trailers and and you know read the big kind of Vanity Fair reveal. Yeah. But I tried not to go into it with too many expectations. Sure. Because I, I kind of think, well, every, every time there's an adaptation, they've got to change things. <laughs> yeah. And in, in one like, you know, I, I did go back um, and read through the notes on the Second Age in Unfinished Tales and in the appendices to The Return of the King. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, y- you can't turn that into a story without making up new things, you're changing the form, you're turning it into a visual thing. Um, So I really tried not to go in there with too many expectations. That said, when I watched the first episode, most of what I did was sit there thinking, oh, that's a really nice call out to, you know, John Mm -hmm. Howe's painting of the battle at the end of the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Oh, look, there's Sauron from Peter Jackson's films. Um, Yeah. 
So I actually really liked how they set up in that first episode that they're not pretending that this is a show that isn't going to reference anything else. They're not pretending that there's that people are coming to it without any preconceptions or reference right. points. Yeah, it was a little bit of a collage of different iterations of Tolkien throughout the years. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a, a good way of putting it. And so when I was watching the first episode in particular, I was trying to shut off the, oh, but that's not like, that's not what Tolkien would have done. Yeah, sure. Kind right. of dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. I had seen a couple of the YouTube videos of people saying, oh, well, you know, he would never have called the character Theo. And I was like, well, no, you're probably right. But he did not write this script. <laughs> That's right. uh, there's no <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> there's no doubt about that. You know, my my little oh well, that's not what Tolkien would have done was the um, the sea monster. Oh, interesting. Because um, In, I right. thought you know, but Almo is Lord of the Waters, and he doesn't retreat from Middle Earth. He's he would not have put up with that. Yeah, I don't know. Almo is interesting. You know, In in the sense that uh, I don't know if he manages the seas with the sort of. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he micromanages the seas. <laughs> Yeah, maybe like, not, but yeah. could be that. That was you know, that, that was my that, little that big that big snake needs to eat too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> uh, all right, that's kind of what I think about all of the old oh, Tolkien wouldn't have done it that way. You know, you can you can think that and you can enjoy feeling mm-hmm. like you have a perspective, but there's always a counter argument. Yeah, 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 yeah. And when it tips over from being a kind of fun thing to talk about into gatekeeping about who knows what detail best. And, right. you know, the person yeah. who never met Tolkien tells you on Twitter that they absolutely know what he would have thought. You're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But do you? Yeah, I think, yeah, that I don't really have a lot of sympathy for that perspective. Um, as your takeaway from these first two episodes, what's the thing that most got you thinking or most interested you or made you think, oh, there's an essay here or um, I don't know. I, I just, I'll just step okay. out of the way and let you talk. Yeah. Look, I, I don't – I haven't thought about what I could write about the series itself yet. You know, it's it's two episodes in. There's a whole lot more to come. Yeah. Um, And I really – I like the first two episodes – Okay. I thought the first one did a really good job of setting up a really big world. You know, they've they've and they've got to do that because of the way that uh, you know Middle Earth works and all the things that we know about it and the the different peoples that you've got to get in there. You know, mm-hmm. I thought the way that they started telling that story by setting up the world alongside setting up the char- some of the characters um, and that mix of okay, so we know. And when I say we, I'm saying, you know, obviously people who come in with a Tolkien background. Yeah. Um, my wife has never read Tolkien. Um, she saw Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, but that was <laughs> kind of it. Um, yeah. You know, she's absorbed some things from living with me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm kind of assuming that most people come to it with at least some idea of kind of what Middle Earth is like a bit. Um and so I really yeah. liked how they set up, okay, well, there's some new characters. There's These are completely new to this story. But there's also, you know, um, characters like Galadriel and Elrond who are 
4,000, 3,000 years younger than when we first met them. <laughs> Something like that. It's some huge so, number, right? You know, and even for immortal folk like elves, they're going to be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked that they set up uh, kind of how they set up that range of characters alongside the different parts of the world. Um, and so one of the things I'm really interested in seeing is how those different storylines come together. You know, I really want to know how they get the Harfoots in there with everybody mm-hmm. else. Right. Yeah. Um, and how do they keep the Harfoots re- pretty much secret until right? Gandalf comes along? You know, because it's you know, you, you, it was part of his great wisdom is to sort of realize that there's something special about these people that are are not in the history books. Right. So. Right. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how they navigate that. Not to say that if they decide to play a little bit fast and loose with quote unquote canon, that it, it, it won't just be a a new iteration of, of the history. Uh, but I'll be curious to see what they do. They they clearly love the source material. I think that that's, for me, that was sort of what I was looking for. Like, not not that are they faithful to it, but do they do they love it? Do they want to build on the creative energy of the source material? And I feel like they captured that for sure. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's 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 not so much the is every single detail, you know, true to what source material they have, and mm-hmm. you know, as we were saying, they've got lots of sources. You know, there's 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 Tolkien's notes mostly yeah. not published in his lifetime um you know there's the films there's the art there's yeah so many sources and i i get this i get a feeling from those first two episodes that um they really wanted to do something good with it mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah. it's not just oh well we've got this massive budget we're gonna stick in a lot of cgi and just make it flashy and shiny you you kind of get the feeling that they want to tell the stories well i got that sense from the second episode i did not get that sense from the first episode i feel like when i finished the first episode i was really trying to be generous and i just thought that there were a number of elements about that first episode that just felt like poor writing to me and i just i then it was i had a little moment like i went on a little journey with myself Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, well, maybe I'm being too harsh. And then I think, no, no, that's just, that's, I just don't understand why it would be written that way. And then I kind of let go and I decided to watch the second episode. And I'm so glad I did. I felt like right. the, there was so much about the second episode that really brought me back into the world. And, and I think that this this show is sort of an excuse for me to live in that world a little bit more. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, the second episode is where, to me, they really start storytelling. Yes, yes. The first episode, it sets up the world. It sets up some character motivations a bit, but... It's sort of, the first episode's a little bit, um, they're, they're stretching the canvas, and it's such a massive canvas to stretch, right? Yeah. Um, I wasn't... I wasn't super excited at the end of the first episode. Yeah. But then the next morning after I watched it, I realized I was still thinking about it <laughs> and yeah. that I wasn't thinking about it in a sad or angry or miserable mm. kind of way. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. I kind of want to see what they do with this. 
Right. And that was when I started thinking about, okay, well, they're setting up a world with all these different characters. They've got to give us, they can't just jump right into the story because yeah. we don't know who everybody is. And there's no one, there's no one character that we can follow. Or... So let me ask you this question. They've done a lot of work to make Galadriel a character who's motivated by revenge. Mm. And I mean, yeah, of course, Elves, elves can hold a grudge. I mean, that's not beyond elves to yeah. hold a grudge. Yeah. But I do feel like, let me say it this way: famously, Tolkien has one-dimensional in in a lot of ways. He, he has he has certain characters that are pretty one-dimensional, and a lot of his female characters lack a little bit of depth. I think yeah. that that's fair to say, right? So, yeah. but I kind of felt like they almost made Galadriel one-dimensional in a different way. I feel like she's almost a creature of vengeance. Like, even from when she's a little girl in Valinor, I, I, I just... I thought it was a very curious choice. I, I wonder, if, did you? am I thinking about this wrong, or did I miss something? I, I, I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, she absolutely is. But I think for me, yes, she's really motivated by vengeance, but she's also motivated by her own certainty that she's right. Interesting. And she doesn't just want to destroy Sauron because he killed her brother. There's also, it's resisting evil. You know, she thinks that evil has not been defeated. They can't be complacent. It's going to come back. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's an element of vengeance in there, but I didn't feel like it was just about that. Okay. Like she didn't, um, she wasn't uninvolved before her brother was killed. Um, she didn't sure. just kind of decide, okay, well, he was doing this thing and now I'm going to, now I'm going to take it up when I used to just be, you know, playing the harp in Valinor or something. Yes. Um, okay. She's been involved from the start. I'll be interested to see what they do with her because I think that they she really is sort of in at least in that first episode she's painted as the chief protagonist. Yeah. And I really would like to, I so I I'm curious to see what happens with her character where it it develops beyond what I'm reading as something of a flat introduction. Yeah. I might, I might change my tune on that. I don't know. I mean know. they've they've got a lot of work to get her from from what she is in in these two episodes to what we see in in the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, but the the thing that rang true for me is her absolute iron will. Hmm. Yes. You know, right. she is so determined. Right. That you know, so convinced she's right, and so determined to go to you know pretty extreme lengths. Um, yes. Not just to pr- not to prove that she's right, but to do the thing that she believes is right. Hmm. Um, and hmm. that that kind of determination, you know, in Lord of the Rings, she talks about having fought the long defeat. And I think the the kind of defining characteristic of her character in the Lord of the Rings is that she has never given in, hmm. and she doesn't give in. You know, when she's offered the ring, she doesn't give in to that temptation. Um, right, she can imagine it. <laughs> She can, yeah, she can absolutely imagine it, right? Um, which this—it's interesting to see a character 
you know, if you can imagine it, then there's a part of you, like deep down inside, there's a part of you that is willing to go there, at least mentally, right? So I feel like this is an interesting way to reveal that part of her character. Mm. So, yeah, I'll be curious to see how she develops. Um, Yeah. Because it seems like she's going to be crucially important to the the kind of story that they're trying to tell. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely think so. And when you look at um you know the appendices the the kind of chronicles and unfinished mm-hmm. tales and the the notes of about her life and unfinished tales you you can kind of see her you know she's never an insignificant figure um she's you know the the sister of some of the you know really important elf lords in middle earth um she's involved in the the really significant events of the first age and then the, yeah. but in the second age you kind of see her I don't. I don't think this counts as a spoiler, but you you see her kind of going from something a bit a bit indistinct in the elf leadership to taking on her own role and 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 kind of building her own kingdom slash power base. Yeah, it's almost like she ascends to a a kind of deity by the time we meet her in the Lord of the Rings. Mm. She does. She almost feels otherworldly. At least, maybe that's just sort of the Hobbit's perspective on her. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's absolutely that. But by the time, you know, by the time you get to the Lord of the Rings, there's really her and Elrond, and they're they're kind of the elf lords still in Middle Earth, and she's yeah. an age older than him. Right, <laughs> you know, you 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 kind of think if you're gonna if if you live through all the things that she uh-huh. lives through and sees all those things happening, and is part of them all, sure, that's you, you're gonna look different to everybody else around yeah, you. Of course, of course. You know, yeah, right. She's if if she's be... just oh well, she's another elf. Um, <laughs> that would be weird. Well, and I think that the second episode did something really clever that I enjoyed. Like, what would it mean for an immortal to be good friends with a mortal? Mm. And I almost, that the whole business between Elrond and Durin mm. was really interesting to me. Like, yeah, of course that's, that's going to cause trouble if you have an entirely different view of time than someone that counts you as a close friend. And I don't know, I just thought that that was a really interesting way into their friendship. Yeah. No, I I agree. Um, I mean, I did kind of think, how long did dwarves live for? Um, but I did not go away and look that up. Yeah, I don't know either. But whatever it is, if it's less than an eternity... <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> right. So, no, but I get, I get, I take your meaning for sure. Um yeah, so that was interesting to me, and I really enjoyed. I I enjoyed the whole business about, you know, Casa Doom and and sort of in its glory days, and uh, and I do I feel like these dwarves are more complex in terms of personality, and you get to see the family life for the first time. Right, I thought that was interesting. Mm. I thought it was interesting. This whole business about singing to the to the stone—I don't know—is that is that somewhere else that I I should know about in in the in the wider Tolkien corpus? Look, if it is, I don't know about it. 
it seemed new to me and interesting. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, that's something that they would use. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I think I feel like there's other fantasy that that kind of has that that idea, although I can't put a name to any off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. At least not specific to dwarves singing to the stone. Yeah, you get the sense that be, you know these dwarves because they are creatures of the earth, like literally mm. taken from earth. That they're almost like they're almost sort of like second cousins to the mountain in the first place. Yeah, but you don't really hear like how that makes them good at what they do. This is kind of an interesting way to spin that forward, and I I enjoyed it. I thought that that's a whole different take on this thing, and I, I'm in for it. Yeah, and you you kind of need that because you don't see it. You don't really see in the Hobbit what all you see is ruins. You know, you never really see. Right. The Lonely Mountain in its glory. It's just, you know, wrecked by a dragon. You never see Kazadorm in its That's right. glory. You, you only don't... ever see sort of the, the downward slope of dwarf yeah. culture, right? And you see, you know, a little band of traveling dwarves and Gimli. Yeah. And that's And they're, it. they're exiled, right? They're exiled. Yeah. So that's, all right. So, so yeah, I, I think the way that they've kind of invented um, a dwarven culture, um, Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's little elements of, well, are we laughing with these people or at them? I, yeah. I'm thinking there of, of kind of the some of the, the stuff around the rock breaking competition. And, <laughs> you know, it just felt a bit like, I don't know, some guy's yeah. headbutting a wall in a, <laughs> like, at the end of the night at the pub. <laughs> yeah, it did, it did feel a little bit that uh, way. But it's a, it's a kind of interesting take on a particular kind of masculinity. Yeah. And I will be really interested to see how they go from, and you were starting to see this in the kind of the end of the um, the second episode, how they go from that kind of rah-rah, mm-hmm. smash the rock, <laughs> have a competition, <laughs> shout at people, yes. stuff, um, to the, the really kind of serious business of, well, what's in the box that Durin sees? Um, right. What are the, you, you know, that interaction between the prince and his father. Yes. Um, you kind of seen this surface. I keep wanting to call it pseudo-Scottish um, masculinity. Oh. <laughs> well, they do have the, the that accent, right? So Right. I um, do. I think that there's something interesting here because... All right, I'm going to kind of fumble over an idea for a bit, and we'll see Mm. if it lands. Tolkien had a different view of masculinity than I think that most folks of my generation had. He really had this idea that a man's most intimate love relationship could be another man. Mm. And... You know, in in the same way that, I don't know, the, I guess the Greeks had this idea as well. And it didn't have to be sexual. It it just so happened that you find these characters, these these men, and unfortunately we don't meet a lot of women in mm. Lord of the Rings. But these men, they, be, they become fast friends with, not just fast friends, they become lovers of, of these other men that they, that they go through the war with, that they yep. travel with. And they form these unlikely relationships. And for this series, it almost was like, well, we need to kind of push through this kind of surface level hegemonic masculinity 
And let's sort of project that onto the dwarves. Mm. So that a little bit later, we can kind of see it, it does go deeper. There is an actual love relationship between Elrond and Durin. Yeah. It, it might need a little help from Durin's wife, you know, to, to kind of coax it along. But I think that there's sort of two levels of masculinity in that scene. I thought that mm. was interesting. Yeah. I mean, yes, there's the, the kind of public um, <laughs> sure. displays. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the, the shouting and the smashing rocks and so on. But then um, in the private space. Mm, I like that. And, you know, you, you can see Durin wouldn't be that cranky. <laughs> if he didn't love Elrond. Right, yeah. He's been hurt. He's been wounded. Yeah, right? yeah. and that's that's really clear. It's not just a, a thing where they kind of knew each other a bit and yeah, yeah, were yeah. ships in the night. Now Elrond's turned up again. Durin, yeah, yeah, as yeah. you say, Durin's been really hurt by Elrond's absence. And he wanted him there at the things that mattered most to Durin when, he's, you know, when he got married. He's had children. These mm. are things that are significant to him. And that they show those things being what really matter to him kind of straight after that public display of I'm really strong and I'm going to smash all these rocks and you're all going to cheer for me. Um, put some complexity into his character, but, but yeah, also absolutely into the, the kind of masculinity that's, that's there in the show. And it's a kind of masculinity that is more conducive to kind of the domestic private life. Right, and, and it's, it's almost like it's almost like he needs. I think he kind of. I, don't, I mean, maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into this, but I feel like he almost wants his wife to give him permission to forgive Elrond. You know, it's almost it, it, like he wants to. He wants the. He wants the relationship to get mended. Right. He doesn't yeah. know how to do it. He needs help. Yeah, um, I I think that's a pretty fair reading. You know, it would be relatively easy for him to just say no you're you're out of Kazadum. we're not going to my house you don't yeah. get to say you don't get to apologize to my wife but he doesn't right. he says okay you can come to my house for a little bit for a, for little, a little bit <laughs> and obviously he knows what his wife is like yeah 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 he knows what's gonna happen once yeah he's there um, that's yeah i i like that i'm 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 curious i mean it would it's never anything that i knew that i wanted it's, i wasn't thinking like oh i really think i'd love to see them do this with this episode it's completely new mm. it captures something about tolkien's world that i love and i didn't know i wanted it but i'm glad that i have it now that it's sort of yeah in the world you know and to me that rock crushing right i i forget what they called it but that's the thing that I don't know, maybe somebody on the internet could correct me, but I, I don't see that as something that's coming out of Tolkien's writing. You know, you don't really no. see... The, the closest thing to it, perhaps, is Legolas and Gimli with their Who Can Kill the Most Orcs competition. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so maybe there I've, I've answered my own where does this come from question. <laughs> but it is such a different right. kind of thing to, you know, the relationship between Fran... Mm -hmm. Frodo and Sam, yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the kind of closeness there that, that is not competitive in any way. Um, right. Whereas right. I guess Legolas and Gimli do have that, that edge of competition. Yeah. But and I think that you're right. 
I mean, that, that does, it kind of presents, the Legolas and Gimli kind of presents as this unique first time in the history of elves and dwarves, you know, do, do you know, this, a member of this race mm. and a member of this race get together and learn to respect each other and learn to love each other. And, um, but I guess you could say, look, you know, if you get one of these in every a thousand years, then of course that's the way it's going to feel, right? Right. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like a staple of what Tolkien does is he'll introduce the world through Hobbit's eyes. Mm. And you almost always sort of begin with the Hobbit and the Hobbit is sort of, you know, very, a, a very domestic creature. And then, so this, this huge world is revealed to the Hobbit. And as a reader, you kind of get the revelation through the Hobbit's eyes. And this show doesn't, I guess it does a little bit of this, but for the most part, we're kind of seeing this world from a bird's eye view. Mm. So we see Valinor, not through sort of legend, but, you know, as it was. And this is, you know, I, I don't know. I'm curious if that changes the way you think about this show. Yeah. I mean I can I can see why you you can't tell the story of the second age purely through hobbits eyes and it does make it a different kind of storytelling. You know, the the way that the hobbits kind of go through, you know, when they go out on their their quests, they're moving from the Shire into a totally different world. You know, the the Shire is so kind of protected and and mm-hmm. not like the rest of Middle-earth. And so in the novels, you kind of ride along with the hobbits finding out about stuff. Right. Whereas seeing it from, seeing that world from the perspective of, you know, Elrond or Durin or one of the other characters that's been living, that's just been living in it. And this is what their world is like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, perhaps they hope that evil has departed, but also, you know, they're not totally sure. So it's a different it's a different kind of storytelling because you have to, you know, the, the show's creators have to give us information in a different way to what Tolkien was doing, you know, in his novels as part of yeah, his yeah, yeah. storytelling craft. It's okay. Well, you can only really see the things that the hobbits see and understand them through the hobbits eyes. So I think there's, a, there's complexities in how to tell those stories yeah, it's it's a different it's sort of a choice to introduce the world in a way that assumes more of your audience because the hobbits needed everything explained to them, right? Yeah. Whereas if it's Galadriel talking with her older brother, you're just going to have to assume that your audience doesn't need every single thing explained, which I I kind of get. Yeah, it, I... it does feel different. Yeah, and it's a fine line for the showrunners to walk because they obviously they don't want to alienate everybody who already knows Middle Earth. Yeah. By over explaining, but they also want to get new people in. <laughs> That's true. You know, I, I I asked my wife um after we'd watched the the first two episodes, um, you know, what did you think of it? And she was like, "Look, I couldn't really keep track of who was who or what was going on or where they were." Um. But it was good enough that I'm going to keep watching. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good sign. So, you know, I feel like that's that's a good start. And I think, you know, as audiences, even if people are not 
you know, seriously into Tolkien or, or mm-hmm. really into fantasy. There's been so much um, with in the last 20 years with Peter Jackson's films and the whole Game of Thrones thing that people understand what fantasy is in a particular way and that this is a whole new world and you've got to just kind of go with it a little bit. Yeah. If it doesn't make sense to you straight away, um, if you go with it a bit, then it probably will. You know, I I think audiences are are relatively willing to do a bit of work to get into something, to find out how the world works, to find out who these characters are. Okay, well, we've been talking about, uh, you know, sort of having a more robust conversation about the way that racial constructs go into the reception of the show. Um, and I'm looking forward to that conversation, but I wonder if we, if you might say just a couple words now about some of the wider conversations that are happening about depictions of race on this show. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this is one of the, the, the kind of, um, aspects of, of Tolkien's work and, and its reception that I'm really interested in. And in, in some ways, to me, what people do with Tolkien, whether that's, you know, creating an adaptation or, or how they understand it, what the story means to them, is almost more interesting than the stories themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly from a, a kind of academic point of view. Um, so obviously one of the things that we've been seeing really since – um any of the casting was announced um around the show is this kind of media discourse that there's a fan backlash against you know amazon's diversity agenda um and a lot of the coverage of what's going on is is being positioned as well true fans say that you shouldn't have actors of color to me that's a, a really um it's a really problematic construction way of kind of understanding what's going on um because you know there are some there are some really clearly racist elements in the hobbit and the lord of the rings um and i did not want that to be the case when i started researching you know doing my fellowship in race and fantasy literature um i did not want tolkien to be racist but it's it's mm. really clear that there are there are racist stereotypes you know the way that he talks about that the books talk about high middle and low humans um, as being kind of inherently different and they look different and their moral tendencies are a bit different. It's like, okay, that's those are really 19th century concepts of race that are absolutely baked into Middle Earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can find little bits where he says this or that good character is possibly, you know, has nut brown skin or something like that. But it, those kind of traces um, don't, negate the the structures of racial difference that are built into middle earth and that come out of real world beliefs and stereotypes that were absolutely circulating when tolkien was alive uh, but were also being resisted at that time um and so what you have in the kind of media discourse is this sense that well tolkien's legacy is really about this white fantasy world where all the beings of color are 
right down the bottom of the hierarchy and they're probably enemies that you should kill on site. Hmm. Um, and that's in there. That's absolutely a reading of the books that is available, you know, and we know that because they've been basically taken up by fascists since at least the 1970s. Um, so we know that Tolkien was, you know, anti-Nazi, anti-Hitler, anti-apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, but the books that he wrote are still really easy for out-and-out racist fascists to take up and say, this is our stuff. This is our world. We love it. Yes. Nobody I else wonder... is allowed in. So, all right. So I, I probably am going to get some details wrong here. Do, do please correct me. So I do think that there was a letter that was written to Tolkien asking him whether he was sort of um, pro-Nazi, how he felt about Jews and Judaism. Mm. And he wrote back and said he had great respect for Jews and Judaism, basically. Yeah. Um, So I think the one you're talking about is when, and this would have been pre-World War II, when uh, German publishers wanted um, wanted to republish The Hobbit. Um, and the Nazis, I think, were already in power or certainly very powerful. And the the question came to him: Do you have do you have Jewish ancestry? Uh, um, yes. Okay. And I've I've forgotten his exact phrasing, but uh, basically he he writes back and says something like, um, "No, but I kind of wish I did." Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. 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 You know, so I'd I be guess... really. I will. I would be. I think he says I would be proud or something along those lines if yes. he did. That's um, right. and there's another letter he writes to his son Michael in, I think 1941, calling Hitler a ruddy little ignoramus. Um, and that's one of the ones that's really often quoted as okay, okay Tolkien was anti-Nazi. Um, All and right. he writes somewhere else that he's, again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember his exact words, but that he that he hates apartheid in reference to South Africa. So I want to let me let me try something on for size and uh, feel free to correct me here. Mm. These these German publishers that sort of, you know, sent him questions about his heritage. um, I guess you could say, well, hooray for Tolkien, because uh, because, you know, he had an opportunity to come out as anti-Semitic and he didn't. And isn't this a victory? And I think that that's how I would tend to take that that mm. statement. Another way to take it is like the world that he created in Lord of the Rings was attractive to enough to these German publishers that it was a live question about whether or not he's one of us. I've just found the the letter that he what he actually says. Oh, good. Um, and he says, um. Personally, I should be, there's a German one in it that I'm going to skip. Um, personally, I should be inclined to refuse to give any assurance um, that I don't have Jewish blood and let a German translation go hang. In any case, I should object strongly to any such declaration appearing in print. Mm. I do not regard the probable absence of all Jewish blood as necessarily honorable. I have many Jewish friends and should regret giving any color to the notion that I subscribe to the whole pernicious and unscientific race doctrine. Interesting. So to me, Tolkien is in, in some ways a kind of quite similar to a, a kind of modern 
liberal white person who, when they're asked about racism, yeah. says, absolutely, I am not racist. Sure. Um, but doesn't necessarily recognize everything as that is yeah, racist still as, lives in as, a as world. being that way. Yeah, still yeah. lives in a world where they have a lot of privilege, where they don't need to think about yeah, and, yeah. and just flat out don't think about race very much. You know, I, I so I think there's... <sighs> It's clear that Tolkien's not the kind of guy who would shout racist abuse on the bus, right? Yeah. Um, and the statements that he makes are, you know, they're anti-extremist. He's anti-Nazi. He's anti-apartheid. Okay, mm. those are really extreme forms of um, state-sanctioned violent racism. But being anti-Nazi and anti-apartheid is a pretty low bar Yeah. <laughs> for being kind of pro-equality and if there's one thing you can say it's that tolkien is not pro-equality in the way that he constructs middle earth right now that's true yeah um yeah, so you know you can say king, he's an right? he's anti-extremist but i i can't see that you can say he's really anti-racist in any meaningful way um and yeah, he's certainly not pro-equality and well, it's it that. would be if in his version, in his life, you know, in the in the world that's available to him, is it possible to look more anti-racist? I mean, I'm just thinking. Yeah, look, I I actually think it it is it is. I mean, you can't okay. just say he's a he's a person of his time. Like, okay, yes, we all are. Um, but one of the people that he tutored as a university professor. Uh, was the Jamaican cultural studies expert, kind of founder of cultural studies and a, a really significant um, scholar of, of race, um, Stuart Hall. Okay. So, you know, Stuart Hall is a contemporary of Tolkien's. Um, lots of people who were doing really significant um, early post-colonial work are contemporaries of Tolkien's. Um, so... Were there, you know, unconsidered racist beliefs circulating in his time? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but there also were people who were working against those things. And there's there's scholarship coming out in the last um, last few years that are that's kind of increasingly showing how this idea of a white Anglo-Saxon race kind of develops in the nineteenth century partly develops through the kind of language and literary studies that Tolkien was worked in. So it mm. develops through them, but it's also part of them. So in mm. some ways, um, from his personal and professional context, it's not surprising that he has these, that the kind of beliefs that were current in his world get built into the world he imagines in Middle-earth. Right. To say, okay, well, we're going to now reproduce them because that's, what he did is a whole different kettle of fish sure you know and and i think what has happened with the rings of power is that they've made a very conscious choice not to reproduce those things you know the the, the kind of to me the racist elements of middle earth are part of tolkien's legacy but they're not the whole of it you know he also mm -hmm. creates these stories you see it in in every age everything that he imagines um, the way that you defeat evil is by 
forming alliances, forming friendships, coming together to fight against a common foe. You know, you see it at the end of The Hobbit. Um, it's embodied in the Fellowship of the Ring. Mm. It happens in, you know, from little bits that we know of the last alliance. Um, and so he has this kind of core value in the narratives that he comes up with of overcoming difference, of saying, okay, dwarves are different to elves, but that doesn't mean we have to be enemies. That doesn't mean right. we can't work together. So he's it's got this... In a, in a sense, he does think about race a lot because he does think of... I mean, it's it's fantastic, but he does think of race in terms of the race of men, the race of dwarves, the race of elves, right? Yeah. And the story he likes to tell is the, is is about these alliances and these true friendships and these true bonds between mm. these uh, different races. So there's there are these stories of true friendships and alliances, but there's also really clear lines about who can, who you can and cannot ally with. Yeah, um, what would Gimli say if if his daughter wanted to marry Legolas? <laughs> right, there, there's that, but you know, you know. also never see. I don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I came across a few years ago was a guy called um, Derek Black, who's now an ex-national, ex-white nationalist. I've who... been following a little bit of. I saw his uh, original. Originally, I saw that story in the Atlantic, was it, or the Washington Post? Might have been the Washington Post. Yeah, this was a few years back. Right. And he, he sort of came out of a white nationalist family. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And ended up sort of deconstructing his parents' worldview. And he's yeah. an interesting guy. So while he was still still in that movement, um, when Peter Jackson's films came out, he's talked about this more recently, he started um, a chat forum on one of the really big early white supremacist websites um, dedicated to Lord of the Rings and high fantasy, ah. um, specifically to recruit people. Interesting. And so using Tolkien as sort of an evangelistic. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've, I've done some research on what was on that forum. Um, and it's, it's really clear that, um, you know, people on there who are, you know, it's, it's, it's a white, it's a dedicated white pride forum. These are not people who have kind of, stumbled across across an extremist online by accident right. um but they they find ways to talk about lord of the rings and talk about middle earth and talk about tolkien in ways that that really reinforce their worldview right and yeah. i did some um some research on, on sentiment analysis on on this this whole website looking at okay this is a hate site but what makes these people happy and one of the things that makes those people happy is talking about Lord of the Rings. Interesting. So when you you look at the there's software that that you know runs an analysis of the the mm. ways that people talk the, the the emotions that are in what they talk about, and this website talked had things about everything from like plumbing to medieval history, and the things that made them happiest were talking about. Lord of the Rings and, and Tolkien and high fantasy and talking about medieval history. Interesting. Cause they were the things that um, they felt kind of um, encapsulate what whiteness is. It's so interesting. It's almost a sacred text. 
it's almost like every new generation needs to find a home in it in a different way. And I was thinking, like, for instance, like, the question, like, coming out of World War II, like, the question, is this an allegory for World War One? You know, the, it was, it was like, let's, let's project our chief concerns onto the text. Mm. And then it's sort of like, it's almost like the hobbits become little hippies in the 60s. Yeah. You know, and Gandalf stops by to smoke a bowl with them. And it's all very sort of a myth of innocence. Like, let's celebrate the nature and the the lack of mechanism in the Shire. Mm. And then sort of in the 90s, I almost see like Tolkien becomes like this champion for the environment. You know, this this is sort of a cautionary tale about what could happen if we let mechanism take over. Mm. So I, I kind of see Tolkien as sort of a place where we want to find ourselves. And I think it, it's not surprising at all that some of these identity politics that have become crucially important in our modern discourse are finding their way into a Tolkien story. And it's not surprising to me that people of all kinds of different political persuasions are trying to find a home in Tolkien because that's what we do with sacred texts. Yeah, I agree. There are, you know, I've been talking a lot about kind of fascist readings of Tolkien, but there are absolutely also valid um, kind of progressive readings of Tolkien. And I, I think what makes, one of the things that, you know, makes his world and his novels so significant is that they have these contradictions. And so, it's not just, oh, well, you can read it this way and that's the only way. Um, it's it's so open yeah. to different interpretations and to readers getting from it what they want to see yeah. and what they want to find. And I, I think, you know, I'm pretty sure that's what I do with Tolkien. I, I think that's what everybody mm. who makes a real connection with those texts ends up doing. You know, you find the things in them that resonate with you. And for some people that's kind of authoritarian far-right politics and the racist structures. And for some people, it's, you know, loving relationships between men. For some people, it's (laughs) that that kind of... If you um, want to find... You know, Irwin as as proto-feminist resisting patriarchal boundaries. That's right. If you want to find an argument against capital punishment, you could find it in Tolkien. You know, you you can find a lot there. And it doesn't mean that every reading is a valid reading. It just doesn't surprise me that various peoples of various persuasions are going to find their home in this text. Yeah, and that's the nature of a vast and complex world. Yes. You know, he spent most of his life imagining this. It would be way more weird if there was only one way of understanding it and only one reading. Thank you. 
Thank <laughs> you.